All right, so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and look into uh, Luke chapter 13. I see that many of y'all are already there, which is, which is great. We're going to continue in Luke chapter uh, 13. Uh, one of the things that we see uh, from, from Scripture and what we have seen throughout, uh, throughout Luke and, and really in these last two chapters from, uh, from Jesus is that the Scripture and Jesus, they don't run away from weighty issues. They don't run away from, from, from deep things. Right? We've, we've kind of been talking about that a little bit, that, that Jesus speak, is speaking into very deep places in the heart of, of man. There's some really heavy things in this text, and there's some really heavy things in life, and that's why Jesus goes there. He goes to those heavy and, and deep areas because that's what life is, and there are things in life, there are even issues and, and even theological truths in the Bible that are extremely hard to deal with and are very heavy, right? So Jesus isn't afraid to talk about death. Jesus isn't afraid to talk about tragedies. Jesus isn't afraid to talk about injustice and suffering and sickness or salvation, He's not afraid to speak about salvation. He's not afraid to speak about sin. He's not afraid to speak about hell and judgment, etc., etc., etc. There are things that happen this, in this world. There are things that we know about in this world that are hard. And we either experience those things personally or we, in some sense, can feel a sympathy when we see those things happen in other humans. We're kind of created that way, to empathize in human suffering and experience. So, so what the Bible teaches us over and over again with these weighty things and, and, and then not running from them, not shying away from them, but, but dealing with them with a, with a truth. Right? It doesn't give opinion, but it gives a, a truth that God has established, not in a responsive truth, but in a creative truth. I mean, he's created it. It doesn't run away from these weighty things. And, and, if, and if we as the people of God are going to be the people of God, then we should be what the people of God are to do, and that is not to run from difficult and weighty situations or truths. Not to run from deep, weighty truth. Hence the emphasis. We are to be a people who have been transformed in ways that we have learned to think deeply so that we will Feel deeply. I say that often. And so we've been in the deep waters of these gospel truths these past weeks, and I'm not going to go over them. And again, this week we see a thread still continue of the kingdom of God and repentance. The kingdom of God and repentance. The, 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 the way to salvation is only one. And that way to salvation, Jesus says, is narrow. It's not wide, but it is narrow. It's through a narrow door. 
Now, the reason why he speaks like this and he gets into this language, we're going to read it in just a second, is that for like four chapters now, Jesus has been engaging crowds and, and individuals who, uh, who have these, this works-based or a race-based religion that's built entirely on, on external things. It's based entirely on, on the ex- external. Over and over again, he shows that, that their religion or that religion, gospel religion, the kingdom of God, is, is not merely external, but it is right religion. The gospel, the work of the kingdom, is mainly internal. It's, it's internal. And, and from the internal, then if things are transformed. Then we are transformed to the outward, to the external. And just as he teaches that over and over and over again, we, we see all last week a, a person, the, the synagogue ruler, again, displaying that hardness of heart that still believe that my religion and my righteousness before God is based on what I do and who I am racially. And Jesus blows that up. Now, the narrow door, or if you've been reading Matthew, the narrow gate shows us the exclusivity of the gospel. It shows us the the exclusivity of the gospel and meaning the, the way that there is only one way of salvation and that is through Jesus. And we're going to see that very exclusively in Chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But here, the narrow door, he talks about the narrow door. He says this whole statement looking at a bunch of religious people. He says this looking at a, a bunch of religious people, and he's saying to all of them, what you are bringing before me is all inadequate. It's, it's all inadequate. It's not going to get you where you think you are going. You don't know me, and, you're not going, and you are going to be very disappointed when the door shuts. So let's look at verse 22. Let's read this together. Verse 22. He, he went on his way through the towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. Hint, hint, hint. Where's Jesus going? Love how we get these, these, these uh, cues for us, right? Verse 23, and someone said to him, uh-oh, we know what that means. Lord, will those who are saved be few? Okay. And he said to them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, And you begin to stand outside to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. Then he will answer you. I don't know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and and you taught in, in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. Verse 28, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth 
When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from the east and the west and from the north and the south and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last will be first and some who are first will be last. This is the word of the Lord. And may his Holy Spirit move in our hearts to hear, to see his holy inerrant word for his glory and our joy. Amen. Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem. Verse 22 tells us, and we, we've known this already, that's his, his mission is to head toward Jerusalem, and that mission is going to lead him to the cross. Now, uh, now we, we've kind of gotten used to the fact that when someone speaks up and asks Jesus a question, generally it's kind of a, a dumb question. And this is, could be interpreted as a dumb question, but also maybe even a good question. And the question is, uh, from one of the people that, from one of the towns or villages, it doesn't matter, it's a detail, it doesn't matter. Uh, the question is, will those who are saved be few? Now that sounds like a question someone would ask a Calvinist, doesn't it? Here's how, um, here's how we should look at this question. We don't know who's asking it, and we don't, we don't know the motivation, so if it, was a, if it was a Pharisee, we can, we can kind of assume that this Pharisee was asking a, a question to Jesus so that, so that Jesus would somehow would affirm them and, and justifying them for their zealousness and their obedience to the law because we the few. We're few. Or, or maybe it's just another person, and maybe in a larger sense, if someone just asking the question because they're just a, they're, they're a good Jew. And in being a good Jew, there's this, there was a general consensus that if you were a Jew and you were in the, the lineage of, of, of Abraham, uh, except for the worst of the worst of Jews, you, you would be saved. And so they are the few. The, the nation is the, is the few. And, and, and maybe they're wanting that affirmation of their inheritance or their, because of their ancestry that they would be saved. Maybe it was to solidify a common feeling of Jewish religious superiority, nationality. What is it talking about? What is this talking about? What is this question? Now, there's something interesting in this question, the word saved. You see that word saved? That's an interesting question because that implies something. If, if, if you are someone who needs to be saved, that means you need to be rescued or you need to be kept safe from something else. Well, who needs to be saved? Sinners need to be saved. Sinners need to be saved. Sinners need to be kept. What do they need to be rescued from? Saved from what? Rescued from God's judgment against sinners. And to be kept for God's love and fellowship. This is the idea in the question. But again, there's, there's an assumption that they are the few. The assumption is that, that they are the few and that they are safe in the kingdom and safe from God's wrath. There's an assumption in this question. 
no different today than people make assumptions on who is saved. People make assumptions on, on who is saved. Ask the same question today, and there are almost the same assumptions. If on, on the one hand, if a person can, can admit, in a sense, that, that, that God exists, or even I think atheists would even say that if you maybe pose the question hypothetically, that if they, do they think that they are saved, I think most people would probably say yes. They would say yes. That because God is love, and if God is love, then he must love me. And I'm not perfect, but I'm not bad. Without any real objective evidence of regeneration, transformation, repentance, or faith, there is the assumption that they are saved. And, and then there are those who, who then assume their salvation because of the marks of religion or religious works and acts based upon their own righteousness. If I do these things, if I check these boxes, if I, if I go to church, if I pray this, this particular prayer, then I will be saved and I can get in, again, with no objective evidence or transformation or regeneration. So the question then has to be asked, do our assumptions, do our assumptions of why we think, our, why we, think we are saved do they line up with what Jesus says how we are saved? I think that's the great question being asked here. And I hope for most of us that answer is yes, that they line up, that we know we have assurance not based upon what we have done, but we have assurance based upon what Christ has done. And then the fruit of that, the outcome of that has been repentance, and walking in repentance, and then there's evidences of other graces there. And I hope that is you this morning, and I hope that this text can encourage you, even though it is weighty and difficult, and that you would continue to strive on, but maybe not. Maybe this passage is going to be one that corrects and encourages you to strive to get through the narrow door, and I hope so as well. Look at verse 24 again. This is the first point. The first point. I think Jesus is telling us to strive to repent. Strive to repent. I'll get to that in a second, what I mean by there. Look at verse 24. Jesus begins. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door. Strive to enter the narrow door. Now, he's speaking in a metaphor here about salvation. Through the door means you're saved. But to get there, you have to get through the narrow door. And just like the narrow gate and the narrow way, there is a narrow door. Now, why is the way narrow? Why is the door narrow? I think it's narrow, once again, because there's only one way. I mean, that's just obvious. And I think, on the other hand, the way is narrow because the other way is so broad. The ways that man has assumed salvation is wide. It is broad. Their reasons are long. 
But Jesus is saying, though, that the way is narrow. The door is narrow. Narrow doesn't mean few will be saved. That's not what narrow means. Narrow doesn't mean few will be saved and there will only be about 10 of us in heaven. Hope you can get in. No. What what it does imply is that not all of those who think that they are going to be there will be there. That's what that implies. So what is the narrow door? The the narrow door is, is what Jesus has been defining for us for the last three chapters on what a right response to the gospel is. The narrow door is the right response to the gospel. And that right response is how Jesus has told us to respond. It's another R word, repentance. Strive to repent. That's the right repentance, to a right response to the gospel. So again, the, the next question, how has he told us to strive to get through the narrow door? Well, first is repentance. That's what chapter 13 really zeroes in on, right? Repent or likewise perish. Repent or likewise perish. And, and just as repentance was almost non-existent as Jesus has been exposing one right after another, these very devout religious people. Example again, the synagogue ruler. And he says, many, many will seek to enter and will not be able to. Those are people with good intentions. These are people who have heard gajillions of sermons. And yet there's no transformation, no regeneration. And this isn't because God is mean and unloving. And he's holding out on genuine people with good intentions, right? But but the, the many are people who do not repent. Who do not repent of their sin. They look good on the outside, but their hearts are stone cold and just totally captivated and satisfied with with religious things. Which means they don't believe the gospel. No humility. They just assume they're saved because they might do certain things or they know things about Jesus. More to that in a few minutes. I love the word strive. I don't use that very often, I don't think. But that, that word, if you... If you go to the Greek and then you take that and move it to the English, it, it, it actually is the word agonize. And actually, if you look at the Greek word, you can read agonize right there in the Greek word. To agonize, to struggle, to, to fight. And this isn't God standing on one side and setting up a gauntlet between and you have to do it. That's not what he's saying here. That's not, that's not what he, he's saying. But, but I, what I think that this word strive, agonize, struggle, I think that this word sums up the emotion of repentance. Because repentance is hard. Repentance is, is very hard to do. 
And, and, then, and then when, when God, through His Holy Spirit, just reveals our sin to us, especially when we are unbelievers and in this tidal wave of wickedness in our life and how we have rebelled against God, there is this agony that falls over us. There's this agony that we, that we have to deal with in a sense. And then Jesus is saying, in that agony, strive then to that narrow door. Strive to that narrow door. Because when the holiness of God wrecks us, we can return and repent. You know, the reason why there are so many uncommitted, self-professing Christians is because there's very little preaching that drives people to strive through the narrow door of repentance. Agonizing repentance. Because it's, listen, brothers and sisters, because it's so so much easier. It's so much easier to go through those other ways. If you've read the Pilgrim's Progress, well, it's so much easier just to jump over the freaking wall. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have said that word. It's so much easier. And it's been said that when Jonathan Edwards preached, uh, y'all may remember first, uh, Jonathan Edwards is um, you know, probably the smartest American ever. I mean, dude was a genius. Um, devout believer, pastor. Um, and, and he wrote awesome stuff. You should, you should pick it up and read it uh, if you can. It's hard to. Um, but when he preached, he wasn't like me in the sense of, you know, he's very monotone. And, and he would sit here, sometimes I do it, but he would sit here and he would just, in a very monotone voice, read his manuscripts. And, and, and these sermons would go for over two hours at times. Listen, they didn't have anything else to do, right? So that, the, the Word of God was just central. And one of the reasons why he, it was his personality because he was an uber genius, and that's why he read monotone. But he also believed, maybe this is how he justified it, but he also believed that it's not going to be through my conjuring and language and how I speak is going to change people's hearts. It's going to be through the Holy Spirit and the Word of God. But his, it, it was known that when he, when he preached, his messages were so strong and convicting. The, in the middle of the sermons, the Holy Spirit would drive men in the pews, men and women in the pews, to, to grip the pew in front of them so hard that there would be fingernail, fingernail marks in, that, in those oak benches because they were agonizing over there. Their sin. There would be, there would be, there would be faces of sweat and, and, and tears because of the agony. And they were agonizing, waiting to hear, was there any hope for them at all? And the hope was to repent. The hope was to repent, to come through the narrow door because God has provided. So back to the question. Will those who are saved be few? Jesus answers the question and says, only those who repent are saved. Strive for it. Let me read you a prayer by John Calvin that he made many years ago. He said, Almighty God, you set before my eyes the many evils by which we have provoked your anger against us. And yet you give us hope of pardon if we repent. Grant us a teachable spirit that we become, that with becoming humility we may pay attention to your warnings 
and also not despair of the mercy that you offer us. But seek it through your Son as he has once for all made peace for us with you by shedding his blood. So cleanse us by your Holy Spirit from all sin until at last we stand spotless before you in that day when Christ shall appear for the salvation of all his people. Now there's a sinner's prayer. That's good. So the first thing Jesus wants us to know is we are to strive to repentance. The second thing is to strive to know. Strive to know. Look at verse 25. So we strive through repentance. Now we strive to know. Verse 25 through 27, we are to strive to know the master. Strive to know the master of the house. And I think what this means is Jesus is telling us to, to know the master of the house through faith. Again, how has Jesus told us to respond to the gospel? Repentance and faith. Repentance and faith. Verse 27, when, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And when he answers, I don't know you and where you come from. And when you, then you begin to say, we ate and we drank in your presence and taught in your streets. But he will say, I tell you, do not, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. There's a lot going on in this text, but one thing is for sure, what Jesus says, when the door is shut, the door is shut. And it doesn't matter how much we knock. And, and here's the good news, too. We know this from other passages. The door will not close on God's elect. Those who are to come through will come through. There's no fear there. But when the door is shut, the door is shut. So not only is the door narrow, but this door will one day close. This door will one day close. There is a, there is a cutoff date for responding to the message of Jesus, to the gospel of repentance. It will be shut, and to those who do not repent, it will be shut to them. So it, it's, once again, it's not, it's not a matter of lineage. It's not a matter of religious commitment or external behavior. If you, do, if you do not respond in the way that Jesus has told us to respond in repentance and in faith, then what does he say? I don't know where you come from. I, I don't know where you come from. You are a foreigner to me. And so there's a urgency here. Again, right? We see urgency here again to respond to the gospel when it comes. Because that door will shut. And I can tell you two ways that that door may shut. Death or the return of Christ. And both of these things we've already talked about in in uh, Luke 13, chapter 13 and 12. There's two ways that the that the door has already been shut. And there will be a time when it'll be too late to respond. But here's the thing. To, Today it's not. If you're here and you're breathing, the heart's beating, then the door is still open. And, and there's no secret code. There's, there's no secret code to get through the door, but just a proper response to strive to repent through the narrow door. But the this, this second mark that he tells us, although it comes in a negative way, I do not know where you come from, the second mark is the mark of faith. Faith of knowing Jesus. You know 
who he is and what he has done and, and, and what he has done for you. And we believe that that is your only hope. We believe that that's the, that is the only way for salvation. Even if you think you know him, and even if you think he should know you, the door closed. But the door is opened. The door is open for those who are in faith. Few are getting in. Few are getting in, and Jesus is telling us that. Again, not because God is being unfair. God is not playing a, a bait-and-switch kind of game. It's not the find-the-ball-underneath-the-cup kind of game, but because they have not responded to the gospel through repentance and faith. And he calls them, depart from me, you workers of evil. Now, that's interesting. Why are they workers of evil? Because their works, which they believed justified them, or their lineage by which they think justified them, what they think has saved them, is actually sin. Romans 14, 23 Whatever is done not in faith is sin. Think about that. Those who are unrepentant, those who have not have true faith and regeneration in their lives, who claim to know Christ, all of their works, if not done in faith and through faith, is sin. About 10 years ago, Actually, right around this time of the year, Christina and Eva and myself, we flew down from Louisville, Kentucky to visit um, Statesboro and be considered for a, a position at a local church. And, and when we were headed back, we were at, dropped off at the, uh, at the Savannah Airport. And we got there early, and so, as, as you should do when you, when you fly. And we were sitting there, and you know, we were doing our best to uh, you know, to wait for our plane, but then also entertain a five-month-old. Um, uh, we're, we're doing all that, and all of a sudden, as you know, you, you kind of look around, you're kind of people watching. You get, you know, you do that. Um, people watching, and all of a sudden, I see a, a, someone in the distance that looks, and actually is like standing in our big crowd to get on our plane, and, and I was like, I know that guy. Like, I don't, you know, I know that guy. And, and, and you know who it was? It was, it was Shannon Sharp. You guys know who Shannon Sharp is? So Shannon Sharp is a, was a, a, a tight end for the Denver Broncos, uh, and, and I come to find out he played for Savannah State, is that right? Which he must have been a monster in that, on that league. Uh, I mean, just ridiculous. Just mowed over everybody, probably played 10 positions, and no one else needed to show up. Um, and, and he was a beast in the NFL. Uh, Super Bowl champion. And at the time, he was actually commentating for, 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 Fox, um, for Fox News on Sundays, right, uh, for, for the football uh, on Sunday mornings. Um, and, I, and so I saw him, and I was like, man, that's Shannon Sharp. And I look at Christine, I'm telling her, she's like, oh, she's like, all right, who are you talking about? She, she didn't know who I was really talking about. So I'm, t- I'm telling him, man, he did all this, all the things I just told. You know, I was like, man, he was a Super Bowl champion just a couple of years ago. He's a commentator on Fox every Sunday. You know, all that, all that stuff. And I was a little starstruck. I was. I was like, man, because he was a beast, and he was big, dude, right? Um, and so, of course, we boarded the plane, and he actually got on the same plane we did, but I never saw him again, and we all went to Atlanta. Now, I... Here's the point. I knew some things about Shannon Sharp, and I, I told Christina some of the things that I, I knew about him, and, and, I, and I was pretty impressed. 
question is, does that mean I really know him? Of course, you know the answer, no. The reality is, is if I showed up to his house one day, knocked on his door, and I said, hey, man, Mr. Sharp, February 23rd, 2009, Savannah Airport, Delta Flight 5267. I made that number, but I couldn't remember that part. 5267, man, you remember me? I'd get arrested. I'd get arrested. And, and I'd get arrested because even though I, I, knew, I knew some things about him, and I still know some things about him in his, in his career, and even though I saw him out of air, at the airport, that wouldn't keep me out of jail. That wouldn't keep me out of jail. And why? Because I do not know him. I only know about him. I only know uh, about him. And this is what Jesus is getting at here in this text. Because there are so many, there are so many that, that know God like I know Shannon Sharp. They, they know God like I know Shannon Sharp. And, and Jesus is saying here, Man, that's so inadequate. It's not going to get you in. Like, it's not going to get me in, in his house. How's it going to get us in God's house? And knowing about Jesus, being a casual observer of Jesus, being just a, an attender of Jesus-like things is not the same as knowing Jesus and knowing him and him knowing you. It's not the same. And so there's a reason why Jesus says, I don't know where you came from. You probably got germs. You're not getting into my house. Turn to Matthew chapter 7. We're going to see the same reality here in Matthew chapter 7. Turn over to Matthew chapter 7. I want you to see this for yourself in verse 21. As you turn, I'll drink. Verse 21 says, everybody there? Beep, 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 beep. Matthew chapter 7. Verse 21 says, you just have to turn backwards a couple pages. I mean, small flip. If you hit Malachi, I go back. Verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, stop right there. The will of the Father, the will of the Father who is in heaven, is not a list of moral obligations that you can live by. Right? Let's understand that. It's not a list of moral obligations that you can, you can live by. The will of the Father is that we would by faith believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by his sacrificial death on the cross, that is the only way we can be reconciled with God. That's the will of the Father, that we would by faith respond in believing in Jesus Christ as he is the Son of God and that his sacrificial death on the cross is the only way we can be reconciled uh, with God. The will of the Father that he is talking about here is not moral deism. It is not moral deism where if we, if we do a bunch of good, then God is going to let us in. If that was the will of the Father, then why would he send Jesus to the cross? Why? The law is there. The law already tells you. Just do those. But the gospel tells us to respond in faith. It goes on in verse 22. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name 
and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Sounds so familiar. What a terrifying passage. And notice what they are saying. What the people are saying in this passage. They said, look what we did. Uh, look, what, look what I did. I did this, and I, I did that. I did all these good things. And they are. These, are. these are all good things. These are all spiritual things. But what's missing? Repentance, faith, and regeneration. Faith, repentance, and regeneration. Sure, you did a good job at conforming to a set of moral principles, but you haven't been transformed through faith. And your lack of submission, your lack of love and no desire to, to know me, Jesus, that I'm just a passing acquaintance. And a passing acquaintance with God is not the same as knowing God and having faith. Brothers and sisters, there are so many that can make that argument. Haven't I eaten and drunk with you? Haven't I heard your word preached in church? All good things, but it does not establish a relationship. And yet so many then will hear, I do not know where you come from. Not only is Jesus calling them to repentance, he's calling them to faith. He's calling them to faith. He's, he's speaking of faith because there are those who are, who are attempting to come into the presence of God without believing on him, without trusting him, without knowing him, and without being known by him. It's by faith in which we believe in the person and work of Jesus Christ and trust in him alone for our salvation, for our rescue, right? For our being kept. And it's through repentance and faith we are then transformed by the gospel. So that second one, striving, striving to know, striving to faith. Let's just close this, these, these last passages out because I think what is... Um, there's, there's such an extreme in this, this next couple of verses because on one side it shows us just judgment and hell, and, but then on the other side it shows us joy and grace. Joy and in, in grace. Look at verse 28. And he says, it says, In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's, that's code Jesus for hell, for sorrow and anger. That's what gnashing of teeth means. Anger and rage. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And Jesus is showing the severity of their blindness and their need to repent because he's putting up in front of them these heroes. These, these heroes in the faith, that even though they were all the way back in the New Testament, they got it. They responded by faith. They responded by faith. And so here's all these heroes gathered around in what? In the kingdom of God. <laughs> in, the, in the kingdom of God. And what are they doing? They're enjoying fellowship and joy with Jesus. 
They're rejoicing in the victory over sin and, and his merciful provision for their own forgiveness. But to those others, you yourselves cast out. Instead of them agonizing and striving and repenting and believing, they're trading that for weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those that thought, those that thought they would be included will be excluded. They will stand outside. They will not, uh, Jesus will not know where they came from. They will depart from me, cast out. Again, Jesus is, is just attacking all this self-confidence that Israel had to assume God's favor. And Jesus undermines it because they will experience great sorrow and pain. And Jesus, but he also turns it around. He turns it around in, in these last two verses, 29 and 30. And he turns it around because those who go through the narrow door, who have strive to make it through the, uh, the narrow door, and those that he knows, what will they experience? Great joy. Great joy and grace. And people from, verse 29, and people will come from east and west and north and south, which, by the way, these are all people that are Israelites. These are Gentiles. And what will they do? They will recline at the, king, the table of the kingdom of God. I love that. Recline at the table of the kingdom of God. That is just good rest with good fellowship, good food, brothers and sisters all around, declaring the victories and the glories of our Savior. In verse 30, and behold, some who are last will be first, and some who are first will be last. So, so the, the shock of their exclusion is compounded by the joy of others. By the joy of, of others taking their place, or they think their place, in the great celebration. Those who, who Jesus is talking about, again, is, is Gentile Christians. He's talking to, to, to us. But, but he's also talking to the Jewish people right here, and he's telling them to repent and to believe. But it is the Gentiles from the north and the south and the east and the west. They're the ones who are going to repent. They're the ones who are going to believe. They're the ones who are going to know. They're the ones who are going to trust. And they're the ones who are going to be at the table of the kingdom of God. Reclining. Enjoying. Another way of saying it is this. Is, is why would you stand by while those who think they are last become first, and the first become last. Why would you stand by and let this happen? That's what we kind of, what are you doing? It's, it's for you. It's given to you. Take it. And here, Jesus, in a sense, makes a prophecy, in a sense. The last will become first, and the first will become last. Why would you fail to embrace these promises held out to ask forgiveness of your sins and seek repentance and trust in Christ? There is great joy at the table with Jesus, but there is also terrible judgment outside the door. This passage, we're closing out, and this passage demands a response, doesn't it? 
We, we can look at others, but we must look at ourselves. Entrance into the kingdom of God is not our birthright. I don't think we've, most of us have ever really believed that, except for maybe if, you know, grandma went to church kind of religion, and, and that's what I trusted kind of thing, uh, which, is, which is still there. Um, entrance into the kingdom of God is not our birthright. We cannot assume that our morality or our, even our religious rituals are what save us. So the questions this morning, as we close, I want to give you two. First, have we repented? Repented, grieved over our sin. Not because we have, we have, we've got caught or facing the consequences, we've, but we have confessed our sins to God, agreeing with Him over the egregiousness of our sin. We turn from sin and to God, and because of this, there is now life and joy and peace found in Christ. And the term for him is this changed heart and a changed life. That's that transformation and regeneration that I was telling you about. So that's the first question. Have we repented? Have you repented? Second question is, do you know him? Or, or do you just know about him? And again, that, that warning is oh so clear, isn't it? There are those who know about him, and in the end, what happens? The door is shut. The door is shut. They're left outside pounding on the door. That's such a scary reality because the door will be eventually shut, as I said earlier. Do you know him or do you know about him? Do you have faith in him? And, and again, this is that agonizing, striving thing. It's very hard to do. And I, I admit that it is, a, it is a genuine struggle. That's why these words are there. Strive, agonize, struggle. Because it is a, a, a genuine struggle. But faith does have objective evidences to it. Genuine faith has affection for the Lord has affection for the Lord, that we love Him, that we desire to worship Him, to glorify Him at some level. It's a desire to grow into deeper fellowship with Him through, through prayer and study and Scripture. And I'm not saying get up at 5 a.m. and you have this three-hour-long quiet time, but, but there is this desire to be in the Word of God every day. Whatever that may, may look out for you, but it's growing, and there's, that desire is growing. Another one is that we hate sin, but especially our own. This, what makes clear, and what we see in the passage, is those who are unrepentant that Jesus is speaking about, they didn't hate their sin. They hated other people's sin, and they hated them, but not their own. And this is why repentance is such the beautiful mark of a true believer. Because the believer hates their sin. And if we hate our sin, then we're repenting of it. And faith gives us the, the desire. I'll give you one more. Faith gives us a desire as well to, to be with those who will help us cultivate more faith in our life. And the, the evidence of that is that, that a believer wants to be with other people of faith. A desire to be with the church in a faithful member of, of the church, right, and be a part of a church that has that gospel culture where each member is, is somehow in some way cultivating the faith of other members. 
Now, here's the thing. I'm almost done, seriously, this time. Here's the thing. I know these questions, and I know passages like this be, being preached, and it may sound like I'm, I'm, I'm trying to get people to doubt their salvation. It may sound like that, but in, in light of this text, I think this is kind of what Jesus is doing, right? I mean, people who think that they are saved, he's basically trying to get them to doubt that. Right? So, so those who are, who are really not saved and you're, you're feeling the doubt of the salvation, then, then I think this is kind of the point. And to pretend that that's not in this passage and just talk about how to be a good person and that Jesus is just a good therapist. Or do we let this text actually read our hearts? And hopefully, by the mercy of God, he leads us into repentance and faith. But also, I've, this text gives unbelievable assurance, doesn't it? It gives unbelievable assurance because if you found the narrow door, if you found the, the narrow way, there's assurance. There's assurance because you know it's not been perfect. Granted, got it. But you know it's not dependent on you. It's all dependent upon Christ. It's why you've responded in repentance and faith. There's unbelievable assurance here as well. And so we have to be discerning here. We have to be discerning in a place where Christianity and so many versions of Christianity, with every style, with every flavor, all over the place, where knowledge of Jesus is so prevalent, knowledge about Jesus is so prevalent, but with so little transformation and regeneration. Through repentance and faith. These texts, in some ways, can be very haunting, can't they? But may God help us understand. I don't know how long I've been going, but I want to close with a short story. I read this story, actually, in one of the books I was reading, studying for this. And it was a great story. Um, there's a, a teacher, preacher named Alistair Begg. I don't know if you've heard him or not. I think he's Presbyterian, but he's uh, Irish? Oh, he is. Good for him. What? Scottish. Okay. Okay, so anyways, so he's Scottish, maybe Irish. We Americans, you know how we are. We don't understand this. Anyways, so he was invited to preach at a conference in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And at uh, Cambridge is where Harvard is, and, and of course it's near Boston. And, and so he's there um, one early morning. He's kind of going over the last bits of his sermon. And, and he gets up early, and he goes to a coffee shop real early in the morning, and everything's still quiet and still. And he's reading and studying, and, and he watches as the day just kind of comes alive around Cambridge and Harvard Yard and, and students and, uh, going around and, and things like that. And, and if, if you know, of course you all know, that Harvard and, and that area is, is very secular these days. Um, it's, uh, it's not you know, necessarily friendly to, to gospel things and Jesus kind of things. And, and he's studying for his sermon, but he's also being very observant to what happens uh, around him. And, and then in the hustle and bustle, as the coffee shop came alive, he looked over to, to the side and he saw a, a young lady. And he was watching this young lady, and she, she happened to be Asian. And, and this young lady was, was reading and studying her Bible. 
And he's just like, what? Like, that's just doesn't happen here. Like, you just don't, I mean, go to Three Tree, you'll find 500 people doing that. You go to a coffee shop in Harvard, near Harvard Yard, you find none. But he saw one. And so he gets, he, finally he gets up and he's like, I just got to ask. And so he walks up over to her and he begins, he starts up a conversation. And this is his response, or her response when he asks her, I see you're reading the Bible. Why are you reading the Bible? This is what she said. She said, I found the narrow way. Think about that. What a response to, 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 to being a Christian. I found the narrow way. So here's a, 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 a girl from Asia. And, and the, the continued testimony is that she grew up in, a, in a, uh, a Buddhist family and came to know Christ and then moved over to Harvard, like Cambridge, Massachusetts, a Harvard, almost a completely secular area, and yet is still walking the narrow way. What a beautiful story, brothers and sisters, have you found in the narrow way. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word. Thank you for the assurance that has comes up in many of us this morning that, that we have so been able to walk through the narrow door by your grace. Oh, by your grace. And yet there's this morning maybe few that are struggling to see that and what that means. Oh, God, would you by your spirit give so much more clarity to this than I could communicate. Thank you for your word. Thank you that Jesus goes into these deep areas of our, of our lives and these areas that, that we just kind of built up. And he goes after our assumptions. And he does that because he loves. <laughs> and so, oh Lord, would you, through our response time and, and maybe even through the rest of the day, whatever, whatever it takes, whatever it is, and you use this word to continue to Grow us and draw us out. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.